Good morning. Let's, uh, let's turn uh, into God's Word and get to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be at this morning, uh, looking at you know a handful of different passages of Scripture, but for sure you're going to want to be there. We're going to read it in a moment. Um, so we've been in this sermon series, God Is. Uh, you can kind of see that graphic there. I don't know if you've flown on an airplane and if you've had a window seat and you've looked out the window and you've just kind of had that sort of, I'm really high up, I'm looking down on the world type of thought. And it's like, this is like God's perspective. Of course, it's not quite God's perspective, but it's like, this is what it's like to be God. And of course, that's not really the case, but what is God like? Who, who is God? It seems like that's really important that we know that, right? Like that, that we would really know who God is, not just that God is, but who God is. And that's the, the aim of this series that we're in, God is. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I highly recommend, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So we've looked so far at God as triune, the, the threeness and the oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've looked as well last week that God is good, that he is good, that he has been good, that he's being good, that he will be good, that God is good. And now today we're looking at that God is holy, that God is holy. So the title of the message is God is holy, holy, holy. Another quote from that author in that book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I'll just read it to you real quick, A.W. Tozer. He says, neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. And so that's really our prayer this morning, that we would be able to, in some new way, wrap our minds just a little bit around the holiness of God as we go into the Word. One thing I just want to share in this introduction, just a personal story. When I was a college student, uh, maybe actually just before college, I had, um, so just personal confession during the time before college, like the high school years, had not lived for the Lord really at all. And um, probably would say I was a Christian at that time, but was not living for the Lord, was making all kinds of decisions and choices that did not please or honor Christ, and I knew that. And toward the end of high school, someone uh, took me to Shoney's Breakfast Buffet, where all incredible spiritual conversations do, in fact, happen. And I'm pretty sure I had uh, French toast sticks. Um, and he said to me, Matt, who you become in college is who you'll be for the rest of your life. And it really shook me. I was like, wow, you know, I... I know I'm not planning on continuing this way, and college is next, and so I need to like figure out what I'm going to do right now. 
So I actually took time off. I didn't go to college right away. I just took that so seriously. I took it so seriously. Broke up with my girlfriend. Like literally didn't go to college. Moved from Florida to North Carolina. Worked manual labor at this camp and was just like, I need to totally disconnect from the environment, the people, the choices, the influences that were making me who I was then. Because I knew I didn't want to be that person. So just kind of continuing... I guess what I would say is I got away from stuff, got away from stuff, and that's important, right? But I was still carrying a lot of guilt about choices I'd made, people I'd hurt, carrying a lot of guilt. And as I began to draw closer to the Lord, closer to Him, to who He is, to His standards, to His holiness, actually that guilt intensified. So as I broke away from the influences and really from Florida, I began to read the Bible. I began to be around Christians. I even read books by Christian authors. Like, and I just emphasize that because I like read books. It's, like, it's actually a big deal for me. Um, I read books. <laughs> But as I did all of that, I just realized, you know what? Getting away wasn't enough. I still have all this guilt, and I have more guilt as I get to know who God really is. And it all came to a real crisis for me. And I can remember one evening just crouching down with so much guilt, such heaviness, and literally getting as low as I could, just like... Not even, I'm not even going to say kneeling, just as lower than that. And couldn't even get words out to pray. And I can just remember that day, God revealing his presence to me in a powerful way, such that I just felt God is with me. And I felt God really in that moment pardon me and Remind me of the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. And it was an experience of God. And it really changed my life. It transformed my life. I was a Christian before then. But the presence of God, encountering the presence of God, a guilty soul, a burdened soul, being pardoned and comforted by the presence of God. We all need that. We all need that. And that's not a daily experience in the Christian life. It's not, and it's not in the Bible. For every one story you read in the Bible of Moses and the presence of God, there's a million Israelites that aren't experiencing that, you know? They're reading about it in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Hello? So it's not necessarily normative that that would be every day for us, right? But man, we need to encounter God. We all need that. We've lost a sense of the holiness of God. The way we refer to God, my co-pilot, the man upstairs. The way we approach worship, our words, the way we talk, what we read, what we watch. We need a fresh encounter with God. So the big idea this morning is this. I want to read this to you. Here's the big idea. We need a reminder of the holiness of God so that we might be in awe of Him in worship, confess our sins, 
be transformed and surrender. I'm really excited about the acronym that you just heard right there. A-C-T-S. You've heard it before, but we've changed it. Awe of God. Confess your sins. Be transformed by his grace. Surrender your life. Acts. So we got three points, understanding, encountering, and practicing holiness. So let's read a passage of Scripture, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and I want to pray, and then we're going to go through those three points, all right? Ready? Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. This is in the Old Testament, the 8th century B.C., 700s B.C. is what that means. So this is before the time of Christ. This is in the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. This is in Jerusalem. So here we are. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, his feet were covered, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Father, we thank you this morning for revealing your character to us in your word. There are a lot of people, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, really the whole world believes that there is some higher power, that there is some kind of God. And yet as Christians, Lord, we believe that you've revealed who you are, that you've spoken, that you want us to know you. So God, I pray that we would do just that this morning, that we would go from our knowledge of you as it is right in this moment to a greater knowledge of you today and this week. Lord, what could be better than that, than to know you, the eternal God, the holy God. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God is holy, holy, holy. So this morning, uh, that's what we're looking at. Again, the big idea, we need this reminder of the holiness of God. That we might be in awe of him in worship, that we might confess our sins to him, that we might be transformed by his grace, and that we might surrender our lives to him. 
So the first point is understanding holiness. I just think it's important that we really uh, arrive at a shared definition and understanding of holiness this morning. So we all do understand something about the concept of holiness. We do. You've been to the library before. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're outside the library, you're on your phone, you have your ringer turned on, you're like talking real loud, you walk right inside the library, what do you do? Be quiet. You have crossed the threshold. You have gone from one place to another place where things are different. You know what I'm saying? That, that's kind of like somewhat of an understanding of the concept of holiness. You've perhaps had a very important meal on fine china before that's kept all year long in the china cabinet. You don't use that for any old meal. Don't reheat your hot pocket on fine china. That is messed up, right? That is holy. That is special. That is used for a special occasion, for a noble, not a common purpose. Maybe you've... uh, been in a church that is really, really ornate. We had the opportunity last summer to go to Greece and go in all these monasteries where there's dress code, there's rules, everyone's whispering, there's photography not allowed. I mean, it's like this is a sacred space. Rules are different. Maybe you've just been typing on your computer before and you go to type the name God and you type it real fast, and then you go back and you capitalize the G. Why is that? Because there's some sense of, right, like let's let's remember the holiness of God. It's different. It's set apart. It's sacred. And so dictionary.com defines holy as sacred, consecrated, having a spiritual pure quality, entitled to worship or veneration, as or as if sacred. Do you get the idea? We kind of know what holiness is, but, but let's think about it in the Bible, in the Old Testament. We see the word holiness a lot. Very important. The Hebrew word is kadosh. You don't really need to know that, but it's kind of like fun to say. If you want to say it right now, you can. I could tell some of you want to. Kadosh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it means separate. It means apart. It means so sacred. Exalted on a heavenly throne, separate from human infirmity. I'll give you some examples. Exodus 15.11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in kadoshness? You see? Awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says it this way. For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Yeah, there's a word in the New Testament, right? A Greek word for holy. Perhaps you've heard of the the Hagia Sophia, right? 
The Greek word is hagias, it's holy. 1 Peter 1, 16 says, You shall be holy as I am holy. Hagias. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive, here's a command to you this morning, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holy. So I think it would be helpful, actually, if we just established a definition for God's holiness based on all of that that we just shared. So here's what I want to put forward to you as a definition. God's holiness, his superior set-apartness and total otherness from everyone and everything else and his absolute moral purity. His superior set-apartness, total otherness from everyone and everything and his absolute moral purity. I think it would be helpful just to kind of throw out a little clarification real quick. We don't encounter the holiness of God. God doesn't show us his holiness like someone would show you their athletic ability by dunking a basketball or someone would show you their artistic ability by showing you a picture they drew or their intellectual ability by beating you in jeopardy. Like God doesn't show us his holiness in that kind of way. It's not really like that. It's more that God reveals himself to us. We encounter the true and living God. Not really his holiness so much as we just encounter him and we are then confronted, our minds blown, our soul crushed with the reality that he is holy. Does that make sense? A.A. Hodge says, and I quote, the holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. See what I mean? His love is holy. It's set apart. It's totally other. His grace is holy. His wisdom is holy. He is holy. R.C. Sproul, who wrote a book called The Holiness of God, which I would recommend to you, says this on page 25, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is mercy holy or even holy holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is filled with his glory. So let's now see this. We've been talking about understanding holiness. Let's now see this in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, which we've already read, but I want to go through it now. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and we'll call this encountering holiness. This is actually really important for us because we've been saying our big idea that we need a reminder 
of the holiness of God so that we might be in awe of him in worship, that we might be led to confess our sins to him, that we might be transformed, that we might surrender. So Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah was a prophet, and he worked in close proximity with King Uzziah. King Uzziah, it's another story. He started off good. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord at the beginning of his reign, but he um, sinned toward the end of his life and got leprosy and was separated from everybody. And then he died. Isaiah is saying to us here that in the year that King Uzziah died, so what's going on here? Like, so maybe Isaiah just went to Uzziah's funeral. Who knows? It's just interesting, and I don't want to read too much into the text here, but it's interesting that this vision of the Lord came when King Uzziah died. It's almost as if and we don't want to read too much into it, but it's almost as if the presence of King Uzziah in Isaiah's life had been blocking a vision of God. It's almost as if an important relationship, someone with power in Isaiah's life, had been hindering him from properly seeing the sovereign Lord. Perhaps Uzziah was an idol in Isaiah's life. Or not, who knows, just just speculating, really. But look at this verse closely. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Look at the word Lord there carefully. It does not say all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It doesn't. It says capital L, O-R-D, right? You see? That's intentional. The word here is just, literally it just means I saw the king. I saw the sovereign. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real king. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Again, with our acronym of ACTS, this is all in worship, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The way this worked was, if you're wearing a royal robe, the length of your robe determined how big of a deal you were. Like you've seen perhaps a wedding over in the UK, right? A really long robe, right? Oh, that person's real important, right? The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah's in awe. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Don't picture the Christmas tree angel on the top of the tree, or I don't know if you put a star or an angel on the top of your tree. If you put an angel on the top of your tree, you're wrong. It's supposed to be a star, okay? I'm just kidding. Who cares? So, um, But above him stood the seraphim. These are mighty warrior angels. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face because no 
human can see God and live. And even unfallen angels cover their eyes because of God's holiness. And with two, he covered his feet, which reminds you of Exodus 3, where Moses encountered the burning bush. And Yahweh said, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. The importance of acknowledging that the bare feet of these angels must be covered. God is holy. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So now we know why they had six wings. Verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And just so you know, hosts means like the army of the Lord. The Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There are devices that we use in the human English language, all right, versus the other English language, the English language. There are rhetorical or literary devices that we use to bring emphasis to things, right? You do it. You might underline something. You're trying to say this right here, that's really important. You might put it in italics. You might put it in bold. You might highlight it. You might repeat it. You might use superlatives like good, better, and best, right? That's how we communicate that something's really important. Well, in the Old Testament, in in Hebrew, the way they would communicate immense importantness is through this kind of repetition. And again, it was already pointed out that there is no other attribute of God that is mentioned with this three times repetition. Holy, holy, holy. The point is emphasis for us. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. It says in Scripture that God's voice sounds like a mighty rushing waters. Here we see that the church building is responding to the presence of God. These inanimate objects can't help but tremble in fear at the presence of God, at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, a biblical justification for smoke machines and worship. Just kidding. And verse 5, verse 5. So we've been looking at awe. Now, confession. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Slow down. This verse is key. This, when he says, woe is me, it's not like he's like riding a horse. And he's like, whoa. It's not like he's just saying, slow down. He's not, it's not like that. When a prophet in the Old Testament says, woe, when he pronounces woe over Babylon, when he pronounces woe over Judah, when he pronounces a woe from God, he's pronouncing destruction and judgment. And Isaiah here, the prophet of God, is saying, woe is me. 
I'm destroyed in your presence. I deserve judgment. He says, I am lost. To be honest with you, I don't know why the English Standard Version says lost. But it's fine. I mean, it's all the same, really. But the New American Standard says ruined. The King James Version says undone. It literally means disintegrated. Hosea 6.3 uses this same word. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So Isaiah says, woe is me. I am disintegrated. I am lost. I am undone. Again, Tozer is helpful. He says, until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life, we have learned to live with unholiness. We have learned to live with unholiness, he says. But Isaiah sees the Lord and he's crushed, he's undone, he's lost. That's a confession. All confession And now transformation. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, picture this. I don't know how you've pictured this in the past, if you've read this passage before, but it just kind of feels, like I think when people read this passage, they kind of feel like there's a harp playing and it's very serene. But like, This is a burning coal that an angel felt tongs were necessary to grab. Okay? All right? And he then touches, again, burning coal that an angel felt tongs were necessary to grab. Touches Isaiah's lips with burning coal that angel felt was necessary to use tongs to grab. Like, steaks on the grill. This is a graphic scene. The cauterization of Isaiah's lips, which he has just confessed are unclean. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. It reminds me, in the New Testament, there's this story in the New Testament in Mark chapter 8 when a man with leprosy comes up to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. That God can, in his grace and through Jesus, bring transformation to a lost, undone, disintegrated, guilty sinner. He just touches us with his mercy, and we are healed. Hebrews 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, of Jerusalem. That's on the hill of Calvary 
on the middle cross. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to, watch this, sanctify, that means make holy, the people through his own blood. And so it would be very fitting for us as Christians reading this passage in the Old Testament of Isaiah 6 to see this scene of this seraphim bringing this coal from the altar and touching Isaiah's lips and to see through it and see Jesus on the cross outside the gate once and for all being our sacrifice, his holy life on the cross in the place of our sinful life that we might receive, have deposited and imputed into our account his holiness and be clean. Verse 8, still in Isaiah 6. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So this is, of course, the calling passage of Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, his testimony, his call. He says when he hears God in sort of the heavens, probably talking to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this triune conversation, who are we going to send? And Isaiah is just blessed with this opportunity to overhear that. And he's like, hello, here I am. Send me. After all, after confession, after transformation, now is surrender. Send me. The New American Standard, the NIV, the KJV, they all translate this a little bit differently. Instead of here I am, it's here am I. And I like that. Because here I am kind of sounds like Isaiah's kind of saying like, here I am, here's my location, here I am. I mean, you know, it's like on your phone, like share my location, right? Or like Marco Polo. It's like, no, it's not really what's happening right here. He's not saying, here I am, here's my location. He's saying, I surrender to what you're talking about, to your question about who you're going to send. I surrender, here am I. I'm the offering. Take me. Literally, it reads, behold me. That's what Isaiah says. Behold me. So we've seen awe and worship, confession. We've seen transformation, and we've seen surrender. Now I want to show you in the New Testament. Because we often maybe don't see it as clearly as Isaiah 6. Like, it's so clear, God's holiness there. But let me show you Mark 4. This is a story you might be familiar with, the calming of the storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus. And leaving the crowd, he took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, 
and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I want to stop there, but leave this slide up. This happened. You know the story. What do the disciples do? Like, what is their actual reaction to this? Like, Jesus, that was awesome. High five. Jesus, you know, we need to get the word out about this. We could market this. You do it again, Jesus? Like, what's their reaction, their soul's reaction to seeing Jesus calm the storm? Verse 41 gives it to us. It says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Who is like you among the gods? Awesome in holiness. They were not just thrilled about the miracle power of Jesus, but they had the curtain pulled back through the miracle power of Jesus that he is holy God. And they were filled with great terror and fear. The holiness of God in the New Testament. What about when Jesus walked on water? Matthew 14, same thing. Soon as Peter, you know, started drowning and he was singing oceans and Jesus lifted him up, right? As soon as that happened, they climbed into the boat. The wind died down. Verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so when you encounter God, you can't help but be overwhelmed with his holiness his superior set-apartness, his total otherness, his absolute moral purity. Understanding holiness, encountering holiness, and now practicing holiness. Again, we need a reminder of the holiness of God, that we might be in awe of him in worship, that we might confess our sin, that we might be pardoned and transformed by the grace of God that we might surrender to his will for our lives. Practicing holiness. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, first century Christians understood the holiness of God. I mean, they were still just people at best. But they had an understanding in the early church of the holiness of God that I feel like we're sometimes lacking. The first sin recorded in the church was hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira. You know what happened? They died. You think the rest of the early church got the message that God is holy? Later, in 1 Corinthians 12, we hear about another sin in the early church where people, the wealthy, were showing themselves favoritism and really were committing the sin of greed. You know what happened? They got sick and died. It's kind of intense. And you say, well, it's so good that like, we're in like the Third Testament, right? Like That's the old and then the new, and then we're in like this new age. Like well, God's not like that anymore. Wait a second. Please delete that part. No. Where is this God today? Where is this church today? Has God changed? No, he has not. God is holy. He's superior in his set-apartness. He's totally other from his creation. And he's absolutely morally Pure. Holiness is a commitment we make, a way that we think, a command we obey, and an attitude we develop. 
as we think about practicing holiness, I just would put three categories in your mind real quick. One is positional holiness. One is practical holiness. And one is permanent holiness because the Bible talks about it in these ways. And I think it's actually really helpful to get this. And so I don't want to overcomplicate things, but I don't want to underexplain things either. So listen, first, positional holiness. That you could think of as point in time holiness. And here's what I mean by that. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you have made a decision to put your sins on the cross on Jesus and to take his righteousness and forgiveness into your life, and you are one of his disciples, then really you will never be any more holy than you already are in Christ. You understand? Hebrews 10 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so it's really true that we as Christians, if you know the Lord, we are operating from holiness for holiness. Okay? Positional holiness, point in time holiness. When you put your faith in Christ, he pardons you, he forgives you, he cleanses you, and you'll never be more holy than you already are through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And you can rest in that. But then there's practical holiness which is process, which is ongoing, which is spiritual growth in the Christian life. You think of verses like Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So there's this sense in which we are Offering ourselves, we are surrendering ourselves as worship, holy worship unto the Lord. If you put your whole body on the altar as a living sacrifice, there's no part of your life that's not there. You can't hold anything back. It's total surrender. The question goes from how much can I get away with without God being really upset to it flips to what can I do to bring most honor to God and pursue holiness with maximum intensity? 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So pause. Wait, what? Paul saying that that scene that Isaiah was taking in, in the temple, filled with clouds, with the robe, the holiness of God. Wait a second. He's saying, do you not know that your body is that temple? How does that change how we think about practicing holiness? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then there's permanent holiness, which we won't know until Christ returns. We'll never be as holy as God. He's totally other. That's a different kind of holiness. He's superiorly set apart. He's totally other. He's absolutely morally pure. But when Christ returns, we will experience that permanent holiness of being free from our fallen and corrupt life of sin. 
So positional holiness, practical holiness, permanent holiness. Okay. Holiness. <laughs> holiness. Understanding it, encountering it, and practicing it. God is holy. Holy, holy. And so as the musicians come back, I'm going to pray. I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to minister to us this morning.